Well, I take an artist or a band and listen to their work. Then I put them on a list like a music critic jerk. Then I put them all in order from the best to the worst. But you probably won't like my choice for first. I don't care. You might think this idea is dumb. You're wrong. It's actually random. Hello and welcome to another edition of Random Album Rankings. My name is BC. Thank you so much for joining me. And you can follow this podcast on Instagram at random.album. <sighs> well, where do I begin? Well, first of all, the fact that you clicked on this podcast and saw the title, despite my opinions on this one, this is going to come as a shock to you. But uh, before I get into that, let's talk about Chicago. Not the band, the city. Chicago, the windy city. It's Frank Sinatra's kind of town. It's the city that made pizza famous. Or is it the other way around? If, if you're living in Chicago and listening to this podcast, do let me know. Did, Chicago, did you guys make pizza famous or did pizza make you famous? I'd really like to know. It's also a city where it's pretty much illegal to ask for ketchup on a hot dog. And hey, I, I won't have an issue with that. Chicago dogs are the best hot dogs, no matter where I'm living in the country. But Chicago is famous for many cultural icons, past and present, real and fictional. Uh, for example, the Blues Brothers, Barack Obama, Bozo the Clown, CM Punk, Garfield Goose, Disturbed, and the front man for this week's featured artists, the Smashing Pumpkins and front man, William Patrick Corgan. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for the last two years, you know that I have taken issues with Corgan's supermassive ego in the past. When I was talking about the collective, talk, doing my episode on Collective Soul a couple years ago, and most recently when I did my I Used to Love You But I Can't Defend You Anymore. So you pretty much know, if you've listened to this podcast and have been following it for the last couple of years, you know that I have uh, taken issue with Corgan in the past. Now, while I I do still stand by that I think he has a supermassive ego that has a tendency to hurt him and the Pumpkins more than help in the last few years. I'm going to be very honest. The Pumpkins music has definitely helped me out in rough times, especially getting through high school. And I am forever grateful for their music from the 90s when I was going to high school and even a few albums here and there in the last 10, 20 years. So I am definitely grateful for the Smashing Pumpkins existing. And yes, even more so, I am grateful in some ways for William Patrick Corgan's existence, even to this very day. Now, if you're listening to this and, a, and, is, and are a pro wrestling fan and thinking, Oh, he's just kissing ass because he BC's a pro wrestling fan too. Not necessarily, uh, but I will have to admit, and I will talk about this uh, later on in the episode. 
he's actually done some pretty good things as far as pro wrestling is concerned. And I will talk about that uh, again later on this episode, especially uh, with his work in what I call the Holy Church of Professional Wrestling, the NWA. But that's a topic that I'm going to get into later on this episode. So this week's episode is, like I said, going to come as a shock to people, but just because I included the Smashing Pumpkins on an episode called I Used to Love You But I Can't Defend You Anymore doesn't necessarily mean A, I hate the band or artist, and B, more importantly, it does not mean there was never going to be a random episode dedicated to a certain band or a certain artist. I mean, there are certain bands and artists I refuse to do episodes on, but that's a feature episode for another time. Let's focus on the here and now this week as I will be tackling and ranking in a uh, non-biased manner <clears throat> the discography of the Smashing Pumpkins. But before I do that, you know what it's time for? A brief history and some facts about Corgan and Company. The Smashing Pumpkins are an American alternative rock band from Chicago, Illinois. Formed in 1988 by frontman Billy Corgan, excuse me, William Patrick Corgan, Darcy Retsky on bass, James Eha on guitar, and Jimmy Chamberlain on drums. The band has undergone many lineup changes. The most recent lineup features Billy Corgan on lead vocals and guitar, Jimmy Chamberlain on drums, James Eha back on guitar, and fellow guitarist Jeff Schroeder. Disavowing the punk rock roots of many of their alt-rock contemporaries, they have a diverse, densely layered, and guitar-heavy sound, containing elements of gothic rock, heavy metal, dream pop, psychedelic rock, prog rock, shoegazing, and in later recordings, electronica. Corgan has been the group's primary songwriter with his musical ambitions and cathartic lyrics having shaped the band's albums and songs, which has been described as, quote, anguished, bruised reports from Billy Corgan's nightmare land. That's kind of accurate, actually. The Smashing Pumpkins broke into the musical mainstream with their second album, Siamese Dream, from 1993, and built its audience with extensive touring and their 1995 follow-up, the double album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 albums charts. With 30 million albums sold worldwide, the Smashing Pumpkins are one of the most commercially successful and critically acclaimed bands of the 90s. However, internal fighting, drug use, and diminishing record sales led to a breakup in 2000. The band would reunite in 2006, this time with only Corgan and Chamberlain reconvening to record the new album, Zeitgeist. After touring throughout 2007 and 2008 with a lineup that included Jeff Schroeder, Chamberlain left the band in early 2009. Later that year, Corgan began a new recording series with a rotating lineup of musicians entitled Tea Garden by Kaleidoscope, which encompassed the release of standalone singles, compilation EP releases, and two full albums that also fell under the project's scope, Oceania in 2012 and Monuments to an Elegy in 2014. Jimmy Chamberlain and James Eha officially rejoined the band in February of 2018, and the reunited lineup released the album Shiny and Oh So Bright Volume 1 
and on November 18, which happened on November 2018, and their most recent release, Seer, in November of 2020. The direction of the band is dominated by guitarist, lead vocalist, keyboardist, bassist, and principal songwriter, jack of all trades himself, Billy Corgan. Journalist Greg Cott once wrote, quote, the music of the Pumpkins would not be what it is without his ambition and vision and his famously fractured relationships with his family, friends, and band members. Music critics were not often fans of Corgan's angst-filled lyrics. Jim DeRogatis wrote, once wrote in a 1993 Chicago Sun-Times article that his lyrics, quote, too often sound like sophomore poetry. Although he viewed the lyrics of later albums Adore and Machina as an improvement. The band's songs have been described as anguished bruise reports from Corgan's Nightmare Land, as I mentioned earlier by journalist William Shaw. As far as the legacy of the band goes, the band's influence upon other groups has spawned, with Nirvana spawning countless mini Nirvanas, the Pumpkins would remain an island unto themselves. The band's influence has shown in acts such as Nelly Furtado, Third Eye Blind, Blink-182's Mark Hoppus, Tegan and Sarah, Fall Out Boy, Rivers Cuomo, Panic at the Disco, Silver Sun Pickups, and My Chemical Romance, whose vocalist Gerard Way has said that they patterned their career and their music videos upon the Pumpkins. To this day, the group has sold over 30 million albums worldwide and sales in the United States alone reaching 19.75 million. And that's a little bit of a history and some fun facts about the Smashing Pumpkins. And now that you know a little bit about them, let's get into ranking. So, these are the rules for this week's episode. Live albums do not count. EPs, in, as far as this particular situation goes, do not count. Greatest hits, such as the Rotten Apples album, not included on this list. And for those wondering about the uh, albums Pisces, Iscariot, and Judas O, those are mainly B-sides and rarities and demos albums, so those will not be included on this one. And the big question, what about the aeroplane flies high? Well, that was a pretty cool collection. But at the end of the day, that was nothing more than the first four singles released off the Melancholy album put into a little box. It was great, and I think Penny's is a very underrated pumpkin song that can be found on the Zero single, or Maxi single, I should say. But I'm not including The Aeroplane Flies High, and I'm also not including Billy Corgan's solo album, The Future Embrace, and Zwan is not included as well. And I, I think Corgan can at least thank me for that since he wasn't the biggest fan of this one either. Speaking of albums that Corgan and I are not huge fans of, we start at the bottom, and my pick for number 11 was supposed to be the comeback album for the Smashing Pumpkins after a seven-year disbandment. And the results of that one were... Uh, let me put it this way. This was a Pumpkins album that needed a good smashing. And yes, that is a negative comment, in case you're wondering, and a play on words. My pick for number 11 from 2007, I went with Zeitgeist. 
there was a lot of hype for this one. It was an anticipated release, especially with the band not being uh, active for almost a decade. This would be album number seven for the band. Billy Corgan was on board. Jimmy Chamberlain was on board. And you had Terry Dade, famous for producing the Deftones discography as a producer. Roy Thomas Baker, who's produced many albums for Queen and The Cars. And just and Heaven and Earth, the album from Yes in 2014. So there was a lot of good people on board on here. Good producers. And you had Chamberlain and Corgan patching things up. And you had that great first single, Tarantula. I mean, that definitely kicked a lot of ass. It debuted really high, number two on the Billboard 200. And it barely went gold. And honestly, the first time I listened to it, I liked it. I accepted that the Pumpkins were never going to be the same. Things needed to change. Things needed to evolve. And this one, after multiple listens to Zeitgeist, it just doesn't seem to get off the ground. It, this one you have to force yourself to listen to. And at the end of the day, Zeitgeist, it's just not very good. It was less of a return to form and more of a cash grab. I hate to say that, but that was pretty much all it was just based on the band name alone. It really wasn't that good of an album, say, for Tarantula and Doomsday Clock. And this is a very polarizing album. This wouldn't be the last time the Pumpkins would release anything that would be considered polarizing. Even Corgan had to admit at one point, quote, I know a lot of our fans are puzzled by this album. I think they wanted this massive, grandiose work. But you just don't roll out of bed after seven years without a functioning band and go back to doing that. He's got a point, folks. And uh, he, even though it went gold, he knows people didn't listen to it because you could tell people weren't listening to the album because in the past, when you put out a new album, you start your shows off with the first song. We would go out and play Doomsday Clock, and I could tell they hadn't even listened to the album. I don't view it as a gross disappointment. It's disappointing to me that I was trying to communicate that what I was trying to communicate didn't get the chance to be communicated. Well, that was the only other good song off that album, The Doomsday Clock. That starts off with a bang. And then everything's just been hit or miss. I think that's the way my love is, was just way too, I don't know, that was just, it was just too by the book of a pumpkin song for me, bordering on uh, perfect 1979 territory. Stars got annoying real fast, and United States, which is the 10-minute track on the album, didn't really do much for me either. And there's a reason why you cannot find Zeitgeist on streaming services, and I, I know Corgan had a lot to do with that, but uh, as much as I picked on, picked on him in the past and on a couple of episodes in the past, uh, I think this was definitely a wise decision. Zeitgeist is just not a very good album save for maybe one or two songs but even that's kind of stretching it however 
However, and this isn't saying much, coming in at number 10 is an album that's that it is better than Zeitgeist, but it's not really saying much of anything. And what a damn shame because this basically had the quartet back together right up until Darcy Retsky decided to just leave midway through the recording. And it was just an absolute clusterfuck from beginning to end. It was a very choppy, very inconsistent album. And what's worse, it was a double album, 73 minutes and 23 seconds. And a good chunk of it was pure filler. I'm talking about Machina, The Machines of God, which was album number five. It came out on February 29th, 2000. Billy Corgan and Flood producing again because they worked uh, pretty well with Adore despite the polarizing reviews. And I'll talk about Adore a little later on this episode. I was not impressed with the first single, The Everlasting Gaze. I mean, but, I mean, I knew that they were done with the uh, whole Siamese dream melancholy with the grunge and everything and want to try something different. You got a little more artsy, a little more electronic, but it just wasn't clicking. Even with uh, Melissa Oftamar, who was in Hole at the time, uh, joining in for tours because Darcy Retsky had quit halfway through just this was an absolute letdown and probably one of my least favorite albums of theirs from the 1990s early 2000s and yeah i mean there's hardly a good any songs that stand out that would be classified as classics uh, try 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 was decent uh another 10 minute song on here glass and the ghost children went five minutes too long i think i honestly don't even remember what the damn concept of the album was because it was just such a weird it was just such a weird album that it's hard to listen to all the way through i mean zeitgeist you can listen to all the way through but nothing is memorable but with machina the first one it's just a really difficult listen i know they're trying to attempt a musical theater deal uh rock star named zero hearing the voice of god the ghost children and all that but there really wasn't anything memorable about it i i will admit i did like eye of the morning when my local rock station where i was living at, at the time was playing it but even that kind of uh wore out, wore out its welcome at the time i think the only good song off of here other than try, try, try was Stand Inside Your Love. I don't really know anything more about this album other than it was just a very difficult listen. And there would be one more album that would only be released online only, or if you ordered it on the Smashing Pumpkins website. But at the end of the day, Machina, The Machines of God, this is one of those rare occasions where the uh, were God of any kind just chose not to listen. Coming in at number 10 is an album that was included in the attempted 
34 track music project, Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope, which I talked about in the brief history and facts of the pumpkins. Uh, this one coming out in uh, at the end of 2014, Monuments to an Elegy. This was a very interesting album. I don't think it's a terrible album, and I really feel it didn't deserve the hatred that it got. I mean, it's nine tracks long. It's a little over a half hour. And I've always said I'd rather have a 30-minute album where all the tracks are solid as opposed to a 70-minute album or 80-minute album which half or even three quarters of the album is filler. Well, Machina, three quarters of that, of the first Machina album is definitely filler. Monuments to Elegy, I mean, I can applaud the attempt at an 80s new wave sound and even adding Tommy Lee on the drums for this particular album. That was a pretty nice touch. I liked a good chunk of songs on here. Being Beige was decent. Run to Me was okay. Drum and Fife is a very underrated track as well. But I think the one album that, or the one song on this album that really stood out, I really got 80s new wave vibes on this more than anything was Monuments. I mean, Corgan's vocals were probably the best on this song. If I'm being very honest here. And Tommy Lee on drums is damn solid. I mean, not bad. I mean, when you got a guy, the guy from drummer from Motley Crue playing drums for a band who was synonymous, just as synonymous with grunge as Soundgarden and Nirvana were, there was definitely some magic with Tommy Lee and Billy Corgan and Jeff Schroeder on guitar as well. But at the end of the day, monuments aside, uh, the whole album, Monuments to an Elegy, it's decent, but much like the other two albums I talked about and maybe one more, one or two more albums that I'll be talking about in this portion, they're not necessarily ones that I would go out of my way to listen to again. And look what I got here at number eight. Another double album from the Smashing Pumpkins. Again, I'd rather have a 30-minute album with solid songs from beginning to end than a near 80-minute album in which three-quarters of it is filler. I mean, a double album has worked for the Pumpkins in the past. Keyword, in the past. But this most recent release from 2020, album number 11 for the band, Seer, this basically concentrated more on the electronica and synth sound. And uh, I've only listened to this album maybe two or three times since it had come out. And the nicest thing I can say about Seer is it is the best album ABBA ever made. You take that however you want to. It's definitely a dancier album compared to past Pumpkins albums. I mean, the music, it sounded like it would have belonged in, in the during ABBA's heyday. And thankfully, ABBA did put out a new album last year, and that is just damn brilliant. But as far as Seer goes, I mean, yeah, it's the best album that ABBA never made, <laughs> which is something you probably shouldn't want to say about a Smashing Pumpkins album. But... 
there really wasn't much to go on here. I mean, it did have its uh, defenders, but at the end of the day, a good chunk of it was forgettable, except for maybe the first five songs on here. Uh, the Color of Love was pretty was a good opener. I do think Confessions of a Dopamine Addict is a very underrated tune and probably one of the best that Corgan has written uh, as far as the last 10 years of their career is concerned. But I think I'm going to go with the title track. And yes, I'm a little biased to that because, because the title track is used to promote the uh, company, the Wrestling Federation that Corgan is currently the president of, Nash, uh, National Wrestling Alliance. And it was used for the pay-per-view Back for the Attack, which was la a couple years ago. And the TV series, which you can find on both Fight TV and YouTube if you're a wrestling fan, NWA Power, three R's, which is why I emphasize the R part. And I got to say, I know Corgan was a wrestling fan uh, for years and, and whatnot. Even that weird commercial he did with uh, when he started his own wrestling federation that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, that one commercial for Walter E. Smith, which was a, a very popular furniture franchise in Chicago. That was just so weird with the wrestlers beating each other up. And then one of them picks up his nice, fancy chair. Corgan climbing up to the turnbuckle going, hey, wait, don't do that. That's a Walter E. Smith chair. Oh, okay. And that was the end of the commercial. It was that was definitely one of the most bizarre things I had seen that year. That commercial came out in 2013. And when, around the time I had kind of sort of stopped following pro wrestling just because things were getting ridiculous. But it does have its moments here and there. And National Wrestling Alliance is definitely one of those that if you're a fan of the old school wrestling, please check out NWA Power. Corgan does a hell of a job running NWA. And... The wrestling is pretty much that. Wrestling. Oh, yeah, don't worry. This episode was not going to be dedicated entirely to pro wrestling. I'm just simply saying Corgan's doing a hell of a job as, car as far as pro wrestling is concerned. Uh, here's the standout track from Seer. You're welcome. Coming in at number seven is the album that came out before, uh, before Seer from 2018. And at 31 minutes long, it is the shortest Smashing Pumpkins album that has been released. Produced by Rick Rubin, the album in question is <gasps> Shiny and Oh So Bright Volume 1 slash LP, No Past, No Future, No Sun. It's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, it's not a Fiona Apple album title, but still. But at 31 minutes, it's short, it's sweet. It It's another album, much like Monuments to an Elegy, that doesn't deserve the hatred. I mean, unless you're Pitchfork, who gave it a 3.4, and as far as I know, that is the lowest. Uh, that's the lowest review that Pitchfork gave a Pumpkins album, as far as I know. Let me double-check that to be sure. Uh, I know they, they were nice to, to see her, but Zeitgeist, let me go back to that for a bit. Uh, 4.9. So Shiny and Oh So Bright 
is the lowest rated Pumpkins album on Pitchfork. I mean, it's not a masterpiece by any means, but, uh, you know, it definitely has its standout uh, tracks as well. Uh, let's just, let's see here. Uh, Knights of Malta was a good opener. Silvery Sometimes Ghost, which was one of the main singles off of it. Uh, Solera, I just think, is absolutely beautiful from start to finish. And you got James Eha returning. So it wasn't all that bad. You got Corgan, Eha, Chamberlain. Eha is playing bass at this point. I know there's an attempt at having Darcy come back and the awesome foursome putting out new music, but for whatever reason, Darcy's blaming Corgan, Corgan's blaming Darcy. I've just accepted the fact that a reunion between the four is not meant to be. Maybe if they get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we'll see those four standing on stage together as one, but I'm not holding my breath on that happening either. It was a good experiment, and by this point, Tea Garden by Kaleidoscope was essentially shelved after Monuments had come out, and that's probably just as well. It was just time to focus on something new. This was supposed to be two four-song EPs, and had this been the case, well, I wouldn't have counted this one as well. There was supposed to be a volume two, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon either. But Shiny and Oh So Bright... I don't think it deserves all the hate. It was a def it was definitely a good experiment. Ehad come back. And I think uh, this was basically the if I recall, this was the makings of what wound up being Seer two years later. So this is considered shiny and oh so bright as a shortened version of Seer and not as frustrating of a listen as the latter. That's the best description for it. And honestly, I don't have anything else to say about Shiny and Oh So Bright. So I suppose I can keep on going. Uh, but oh, yeah, I'll, I guess I can play this, the standout track from Shiny and Oh So Bright, eh? And coming in at number six is the debut album from 1991, described by Corgan as, quote, a very spiritual album and, quote, an album about spiritual ascension. The album, of course, that I'm talking about is Gish, released on May 20th, 1991. It originally debuted at number 195 on the Billboard 200 Albums charts and then would eventually peak at number 146 in 2011 after the uh, deluxe edition had come out now i wasn't listening to this kind of music at the time i was aware of nirvana and and red hot chili peppers around that time but it wasn't really the kind of music i was listening to at the time in fact i didn't really listen to any smashing pumpkins until i got into eighth ninth grade but even then i just it wasn't a band that was on my radar around that time I have to say, though, I didn't listen to this album in full until about 10, 15 years ago. I figured the only good songs off of Gish were what were on the Greatest Hits collection, specifically Siva and Rhinoceros, which I think is a great track and deserves your attention. I Am One is another one that really stands out. This, those first three songs basically describe Gish to me, and it's really all you would need to know. 
at least I thought so, but there are some good songs on here too. Uh, Suffer is underrated. Uh, Tristessa is an interest was an interesting tune. And the closing track, Daydream with the hidden track, I'm Going Crazy. Great way to end the album. But it wasn't until the deluxe edition in 2011 came out with the uh, bonus CD, Tripping Through the Stars, the Peel Session of Siva. Then you got uh, demos like Honey Spider, uh, Plume was another one, Jesus is the Sun, and an alternate version of the eight-minute epic Drown, which would be on the singles soundtrack. I mean, at the end of the day, Rhinoceros is still the best song on the album. I'll play a little bit of that for you right now. Can't go wrong with a six and a half epic on your first album. I mean, Gish is not a bad album. That one, I mean, describing albums 11 through seven, those are the ones that I would not go out of my way to listen to, in all honesty. Number six through four are, yes, do give them a shot. And I'll, and which leads into my top three of how to get into the pumpkins properly. But Gish is a, Good debut. It does its job of introducing the world to the Smashing Pumpkins, but thankfully their music would only get better from there as far as this decade goes. So with that said, I'm going to take a quick little break to pay some bills, and when I return, I will have my top five favorite Smashing Pumpkins albums of all time, including a couple that I have so high on the list this episode will end not without controversy. Hang tight. By the time 2000 rolled around, the Smashing Pumpkins were practically running on fumes. All their album sales that they had accrued in the early 90s with Siamese Dream and Melancholy had been practically cut in half thanks to the popularity of teen pop and the MTV TRL era had begun around this time. So back in the 90s when kids were listening to Nirvana and Pumpkins, teens in the 2000s were listening to NSYNC and Britney Spears. So it was basically a unfortunate changing of the guards in this case. And the band would promptly call it quits around Christmas time of 2000 with one final show at the Metro Theater in Chicago, Illinois. But before that, we were graced. Well, I wouldn't say we were graced. This kind of was a quiet release in 2000, September 5th, 2000 to be exact. There was supposed to be a physical copy release to be sold in stores, but unfortunately that was not the case because this album was released for free on the internet, which was a rarity back in that time frame, and Kid A by Radiohead, yes, it's always going to go back to Kid A, shut up, was another example of how you can get music for free on the internet. 
So Smashing Pumpkins were definitely uh, up on that list as far as innovators. One last time before calling it quits. And I have to say, I didn't get a chance to listen to this, nor was I even aware of this album until a few years after its release. And by the way, Corgan, if you are listening to this, your fans, including myself, are still waiting for that deluxe reissue where you're going to combine the two Machina albums. Wait, what do you mean two Machina albums? I mean two Machina albums. You already know I have Machina 1, Machines of God, or the Machines of God, at the bottom of my list at number 10. My pick for number 5, the rare occasion where a sequel is better than the first, my pick for number 5 is Machina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music. And it's also longer than the first Machina. It's an hour and a half long. And 14 tracks total. All I can say about that is it was much, much, much better than Machina 1. Maybe one of these days I'll listen to 1 and 2 as 1. I'm still waiting for that bundle. So hopefully Corkin will get on that. I know he's busy with NWA right now. And he got with a couple of, with a pay-per-view happening Uh in the next few weeks, you got the Crockett Cup tournament. Look it up. If you're a pro wrestling fan, you get it. But Crockett Cup tournament is the uh, tag team tournament. 16 teams competing for money and a trophy and stardom. <laughs> I'm excited for that uh, particular event. That's going to be on pay-per-view uh, March 19th and 20th, I believe. Uh, and I'm going to be attending that for sure. I am, am stoked for that, so I can cross that off my bucket list as far as wrestling shows are concerned, seeing an NWA event. I mean, it is the holy church of pro wrestling after all. But, okay, yeah, this isn't a pro wrestling episode. This is a Pumpkins episode. I'm just simply saying when he's done focusing on this upcoming pay-per-view that's happening, I hope that... Uh, he will uh, work on getting that deluxe edition of Machina 1 and 2 put on the streaming services or at least available to buy online as a physical copy because those deluxe editions of Gish through Adore have been phenomenal and there's so much from each of those albums that almost even surpass the albums themselves. But that's neither here nor there. I'll talk about those in just a bit. But Machina 2 was basically inspired by Corgan listening to a lot of Depeche Mode, a lot of Cure, a lot of Dream Pop was involved here. And this is actually a very good album, and it really had no right to be, especially with how bad Machina 1 or how disappointing Machina 1 was. I mean, this is another concept album, a continuation of uh, Rockstar Gone Mad, which I know was done a lot better with Pink Floyd The Wall. But this is to 90s kids what The Wall was to 70s and 80s kids, if that makes any sense. And I know that's really going, that's like really uh, stretching as far as this goes. But Machina 2 is really solid here. And this would be the last album to feature James Eha before he would leave and wouldn't return until 2018. Uh, Cash Car Star is a fun little track on here. Uh, James Eha's uh, composition, Go, 
is very underrated. James Eha's songwriting is definitely more mellow compared to what the Pumpkins have usually done. And I, I kind of dig it. James Eha is a bit, one of the best guitarists of all time and definitely deserves a little more recognition than he's gotten over the years. So James Eha is definitely a good mixed a, a good piece of the pumpkins puzzle. I mean, if Corgan's the bread, Ehan Chamberlain and to a point Retsky were the filling for that sandwich. And this was a this was a damn good sandwich, honestly. Even at 90 minutes, it shouldn't it didn't even overstay its welcome when it should have, honestly. There are some really good tracks on here, as I'd said. Uh, Blue Skies Bring Tears, White Spider is an interesting one. The seven-minute track, In My Body. And even the EPs which uh, that came with, which Corgan said was mainly B-sides. You got covers of James Brown's Soul Power, uh, Saturn 9, If There Is a God. And there was an alternate version of the song, Try. I talked about Try, Try, Try being on the first mock. You know, I think Try is not as good as Try, 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 if that makes any sense. I think the one standout song on the album, I think, and only because it was the only song released off the album, which is really a shame because Machina 2 probably deserved a little more than just a, oh, it's free. Go ahead, take it. If not, oh, well, uh, we're breaking up at the end of the year anyway, so uh, Merry Christmas. But let me give the world to you. Well, take a listen. I mean, I didn't get to listen to Machina 2 until several years after its release. And this is a Diamond in the Rough album in every sense of the word. have picked on Corgan and the Pumpkins later works in the for the last several years. But honestly, when I listened to Machina 2, I really decided maybe I should give their later works another shot because Machina 2 had all the potential in the world of being a classic, and especially with how disappointing a door, say at least sales for a door and Machina 1 were concerned. This really had no business being as good as it was, and lo and behold, it turned out to be a just mind-blowing album. And I think with enough tweaking, I think the Pumpkins could have survived another decade as opposed to being dormant uh, up until 2006. Because honestly, oh my god, the less I talk about Zwan, the better. There, may, there were maybe a couple of good tracks on there, but that is definitely a disappointing album. And just it was essentially the great value brand Smashing Pumpkins in this case. Even Corgan pretends the album doesn't exist, and who can blame him? This and his soul and Co Corgan's solo debut, The Future Embrace. I wanted to like that one, but. I, that was the most difficult listen to get into and not even a good difficult listen. It was just, it just wasn't very good. I'm going to be honest. It just wasn't very good. And it got to the point where Corgan went into the local rock station, Chicago, 
and announced, I want my, or no, it wasn't even a radio station. He posted a one page article in the classified section. I want my band back. And that kind of sort of, uh, it, it was difficult to get that uh, back up and running, especially with Zeitgeist, but I think the Pumpkins are going to be okay as far as their future releases are concerned. Machina 2 is definitely one I would suggest giving a listen to, and if they, and if Corgan and crew ever decide to release the Deluxe Edition combining those two Machina albums, maybe I might like Machina Machines from God a little bit more than I have in the past. But only time will tell. But one album that I really suggest you give a listen to, and in my opinion, the best part of that uh, shelved Tea Garden by Kaleidoscope project, my pick for number four, and this is a very controversial pick. This I told you this top five is going to be controversial no matter what. But my pick for number four, I say this with no shame, Oceania, the eighth studio album from them, released in 2012. I believe I actually had that as my third favorite album of 2012, and that was from a year that had Tempest by Bob Dylan, Babel by Mumford and Sons, The Killers' Battleborn. So there were some good albums that had come out in 2012, and of course the ill-fated trilogy Uno Dos Trey from Green Day, but Oceania really blew my mind because this was the best. I honest to God believe this was the best album the band had put out in years. Years. I mean, wow. I didn't expect, I mean, I was hoping it would be good. I liked the Celestials when they played it on uh, uh, Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, they are attempted an alternative station, The Current. The Celestials was a good song. Panopticon, Panopticon excuse me was another underappreciated tune but june 19th when the album came out i was hooked i decided to uh it was one of the last few albums i would buy physically uh as i was slowly going and uh going to get my music from streaming services but oceania is one of the last albums that i would go out of my way to buy a physical copy of and from the opening track quasar I was hooked. Holy shit. This I felt like it was the night it was 1996-97 again. Back when I was getting into this band and there's so many good tracks on here. The three I talked about um the 9 minute title track is also solid. The Chimera, Glissandra, Wildflower. It's a 60 minute album and believe it or not, it's hardly filler and this would also be the first Pumpkins album in a number of years where it would be praised not only by fans, but by music critics. I mean, let's take a look at who uh, gave these perfect reviews. I mean, it was 72 on Metacritic, but you got four stars from all music, a perfect five-star rating from Artist Direct, four stars from Consequences Sound, a 6.3 from Pitchfork, which, let's be honest, as far as, as, far as Pitchfork goes, that's a good review, uh, if I'm being brutally honest. And it debuted at number four on the Billboard 200s. And this was essentially, and the musicianship on here, Corgan, Schroeder on guitar, Nicole Fiorentino, who played bass for a short period of time before she left the group, Mike Byrne on drums. These guys, 
this was the most cohesive that the pumpkins had sounded in a very long time. And I have to give props to my, I think my favorite track on here uh, comes at near the end of the album. I have to go with pale horses uh, standout track amidst the few tracks I talk about. Pale horse is just a very good listen from start to finish. And again, this comes from an album that had no right to be this good, especially with how things had gone from 2000 up until the release of Oceania. They give you this, they take away that, far as There'll be no others, there'll be no long lost friends. Now, what I consider Oceania essential I don't think so. I don't think Oceania, I mean, as much as great as this album was, it's close to a classic. And yeah, I'm a little biased because I prefer the original quartet of Corgan, Chamberlain, Reskin, Eha, just as much as you people do. But it is a near classic. And this is definitely one that I would go out of my way to listen to. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, for albums six through four, these are these are albums that are definitely worth a listen to. Everything after after four through six, I mean, seven through eleven, are ones that are just ones I wouldn't go out of my way to listen to. I mean, you could try, but it's more of an at your own risk type of situation. So with eleven to seven as play, listen at your own risk, and six through four being, yeah, these are worth a listen down to the top three, which I believe are the essential Pumpkins albums and ones that if you want to try getting into the Smashing Pumpkins, these are the three albums you should give a shot right right away, especially after you're done, you're done listening to this episode. So that brings us to our top three, and I kick things off with an album that polarized the fan base and critics alike my pick for number three is not only controversial, it's downright downtrodden. While I was in the process of recording this episode, I had to ask myself, how would I go about talking about the album I have at number three without me personally losing my shit? Because this is the most difficult album that I have ever listened to in the discography of the Smashing Pumpkins. And it's probably the most difficult album that the band has ever recorded because this album has been described by Corgan himself as a band falling apart and in a 2005 interview described as, quote, one of the most painful experiences in my life. With Jimmy Chamberlain at that point being fired due to his uh, drug, heavy drug addiction, which resulted in the death of their touring keyboardist, Jonathan Melvoin, in 1996, and then Corgan going through a divorce and right around that same time, his mother, Martha, would succumb to cancer, all while in the process of recording the album I have at number three. And 
I did not want to like this album, especially because I was such a huge fan of the previous two albums that come out before it. So, especially with that opening track, which I still hate with a passion to this very day, or the first single, I should say. But on a whim and advice from a friend who I've sadly lost touch with over the years, by God, this was an amazing album and probably the last Pumpkins album that would be considered, in my opinion, an essential Pumpkins album. My pick for number three from 1998, album number four, Adore. And I really did not want to put this as high as I did, but by God, listening to it, I mean, you can't really, it's not a driving record. You can't listen to this while you're driving. And it's actually hard to listen to when you're working from home or working at an office where you're able to listen to music and whatnot. But this is the one of the single most depressing albums I have ever listened to in my lifetime. And definitely will do a number on your mental health, especially when you yourself are suffering from depression, which I was at around that time frame. I, I definitely will stand by Ava Adore being one of the worst pumpkin songs of all time and a horrible choice for first single. But the album as a whole, uh, the follow-up single, Perfect, this is a very beautiful album. The artwork is definitely moody. Everything's in black and white uh, up until the deluxe edition that came out in 2014 where everything was colorized. But Adore is just sets the mood. It's dark. It's depressing. It's moody. But with all that Corgan had been going through it around that time frame with the divorce, his uh, falling out with one of his best friends and bandmate, Jimmy Chamberlain, his mother passing away. There, I mean, there is not going to be a happy track on this album. That was expected. And I really regret not uh, soaking in a door back when it came out. I wish I had. But as I listened to it over the years, and I'll be honest, I did not buy a door until I went to a pawn shop and got it for two bucks in mint condition, I might add. So that was a surprise in itself. But a door is just absolutely beautiful from start to finish. The opening track to Sheila. Uh, well, Alva Adore is not very good. Perfect is an underrated pumpkin song. Once upon a time, crestfallen apples and oranges shame behold the nightmare so many good tracks on here it's really hard to pick out two that stand out i i mean the singles were good except for that first one but i really gravitated to songs like tear i saw you then And the thing about this album was even critics had softened up to Corgan and the Pumpkins at this point. Remember when I told you about that one critic who said, quote, Pumpkins lyrics sound like sophomore poetry? Well, 
Jim Regattis ate his words and said that Corkin had, quote, took a big leap forward as a lyricist with Adore. And honestly, I think this, despite with all he was going through, the lyrical content in Adore is the most mature songwriting that Corgan has ever done in his in his life. I still stand by that is one of the best albums of Cor best uh, songwriting of Corgan's career is on a door. And that really says a lot. And part of me was really tempted to put this a little higher up than three, even going as far as saying maybe number one. But as you'll find out, there were two other albums that I still gravitate to this very day. But Adore is just phenomenal from start to finish. Now, I'm going to warn you, it is a very difficult listen with the lyrical content. So if you're not in the right frame of mind, this is probably not the right album for you. And uh, I definitely have to give props to the next, one of the next to last tracks of the album for Martha, which was a very soul-crushing tribute to his mother who had passed away during the recording eight minutes long technically it's six minutes long but then you have that two-minute instrumental interlude with the looped uh guitar strum and the synth which basically sounds like uh spirit ascending into heaven that's the best description i could come up with it but for martha is definitely one of the most tear-jerking songs on the album and even i can't help but uh, break into tears when i hear it it's just an absolutely beautiful song, and I apologize. I sound like I'm breaking down. There's a reason for that, because I did not know how I was going to talk about Adore without tearing up. So it's just a soul-crushing album from start to finish. But this is a good soul-crushing. And with, I mean, and Corbin was going through some mental health issues at that time, too. And I had been dealing with a lot of stuff in my time, too. And uh, I'll talk about that in a future episode, but I definitely have to credit Adore for at least uh, saving my life because uh, music has always been therapy for me and, and whatnot. I just love this album to death, no pun intended. <laughs> if you really have, if you have an opportunity, this is definitely one of the albums of the Pumpkins you really, really need to listen to. I just, I mean, I prefer the, the albums I have in my top two. I prefer a lot more than Adore, but there's always going to be a place in my heart for Adore. And it was basically just the start of a new era for the Pumpkins. This would be the first album done as a trio of Eha, Retsky, and Corgan. The production with Corgan and Flood is just phenomenal on here and just, or, yeah, Flood helped out with a little bit, I should say. It was Corgan and Brad Wood, for the most part. Uh, Flood would be a producer for Pumpkins albums from Melancholy up until uh, Zeitgeist and Oceania, and then Flood would come back for the remainder of their discography. But the triple threat of Flood, Corgan, and Brad Wood are just amazing. The synth electronica really uh, shines on this one. And the lyrics, oh my God, the lyrics are amazing. If there's one thing I could change about Adore, I would have probably dropped Blank Page or 17 and just wrapped it up with For Martha. And 
but I guess blind page in 17 was just basically uh, their way of saying, hey, this is a new era. You're not getting melancholy too. You're not getting Siamese dream too. This is our, uh, this is the path we're headed. And it should have been a clue with uh, I from Lost Highway and, and this beginning is the end from Batman Robin that was going to be the new direction for the Smashing Pumpkins. But we should have listened and Adore is just absolutely beautiful. If you've never listened to it or if you knew it came out and disowned it because of the change in music, I mean, I can't fault you for that. I felt that way too. But as I got older and gave this a listen, Adore is one of the most beautiful albums I have ever listened to and probably the last Pumpkins album I would ever consider to be essential. So if you have a chance when you're done listening to this episode, Adore is definitely one of the albums I would give a listen to right off the bat. Okay, well, let's try and lighten the mood up for these last two albums, shall we? Uh, I did say Adore is definitely an album that you want to get into, and I really debated whether or not to put that one higher. But at the end of the day, high school and whatnot, I have to go with my top two, and these two albums are definitely ones I would start off with if you want to get into the Smashing Pumpkins. I mean... The three albums that I would get into are Siamese Dream, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and Adore. Those are your main three. And then probably follow up with Pisces is scary just to see what the band was capable of in the 90s. But I'm not counting Pisces as scary on this list. I am counting just the studio albums. And my pick for number two is the album that broke them into the mainstream. It's the second album of their career produced by Butch Vig, who is responsible for producing Nirvana's Nevermind and going on to be in the band Garbage. It was also synonymous with the alternative music scene in the 90s. But my pick for number two is one of the greatest alternative rock albums ever made. I have to go with Siamese Dream. This is an absolutely perfect album from start to finish. And uh, it is phenomenal. There is, honest to God, not one bad track on this album. It plays beautifully. It starts great. It ends strong. Uh, Sherub Rock, holy shit, what an opener. And the kick-ass tracks on here just keep coming quiet today, which was this another single off the album with Billy Corgan and with a Corgan in the ice cream truck being uh, painted by a bunch of random people he sees on the road. Hummer is an awesome tune. Rocket is horribly underrated. Disarm, you know how that song goes. That's the one with the orchestra in the background. Just a beautiful, luscious video for uh, for that song as well. Soma. 
Geek USA, and I, honest to God, you can fight me about this all you want to. I don't care what anybody says. I think Mayonnaise is not only the most underrated song the Smashing Pumpkins ever did, I believe, despite the great singles that were released off this album, Mayonnaise is the single best song on Siamese Dream. I stand by that. Just an amazing album. I mean, the production from Corgan and Butch Vig, and I, I forgot to mention Mike Mills of REM plays guitar on uh, Soma, or excuse me, not guitar, piano on Soma. Just a phenomenal record, and this was basically an example of how awesome the quartet of Corgan, Retsky, Eha, and Chamberlain really were. They were a very cohesive unit. Uh, unit back in the 90s and they are a matching set when when one is separated the band implodes despite how much i love adore but siamese dream this was released and recorded not without personal issues of corgan as well at this point uh it wasn't just corgan that was having issues during the recording of this album there was Corgan was dealing with weight gain, suicidal depression, writer's block. Uh, James Eha and Darcy Retsky had been in a relationship, and that, and they had broken up prior to the recording of this. And Jimmy Chamberlain, as I mentioned earlier when I talked about Adore, he was going through severe addiction uh, to heroin. And Virgin Records putting so much pressure on making the next album to, quote, set the world on fire. Between 1991's Gish and Siamese Dream in 1993, there was definitely a lot of pressure on what this band could possibly do. And thankfully, after Gish, the band would only get better from here. Siamese Dream, you can't talk about albums from the 90s without talking about this album. I love the album cover with the two kids hugging each other. That's adorable. And even the deluxe edition, I want to talk about that for a bit, too, before I uh, wrap up and go to the number one spot. There are some damn good songs on the uh, bonus, on the uh, deluxe edition, the bonus CD, Lollipop Fun Time. Let's see, uh, rough mixes of Pissant, uh, Siamese Dream itself, the, the attempted title track that didn't happen, STP, which despite coming out in 1991... Was it a stab at Stone Temple Pilots? I don't know, but I wouldn't put it past them. Frail and Bedazzled, which is another great track that you can find on Pisces uh, Iscariot. Quiet, uh, BBC Sessions of Quiet and Never Let Me Down Again, which I think is one of the best Depeche Mode covers ever done uh, by Smashing Pumpkins. I do like that one. Uh, there were demos under alternate titles. Silver Fuck, which is the nine-minute track on the album, was released under the title Ache. Uh, Space Boy is another great song on here. And you even get a live DVD, which ends with Silver Fuck for 13 and a half minutes. In fact, that closed, that was the final track of the Pumpkins' last show in 2000 before they called it quits. I, I don't really know what else I can say about Siamese Dream that hasn't been 
been said already. I mean, you can argue that it is the best Pumpkins album. A lot of people who are fans of theirs say Siamese Dream is still the best. There are still some that say Adore, a, a very small some that say Adore is the best album. I'm inclined to agree with that. Just about every single review you see of Siamese Dream is either four and a half or five stars. There really is no bad review of this album. Unless, of course, you're Rolling Stone. And even a three and a half star rating isn't all that bad, folks. But Siamese Dream is essentially junior high and high school for me. And at the time, I was more of a country music oldies guy. So it took a hangout with certain people to... Uh, get into some more music and it wouldn't be until I moved to a house that had uh, MTV on our cable system where I was really diving into alternative rock. But this was one of those albums along with uh, super unknown by Soundgarden that opened the floodgates as far as listening to grunge music is concerned. I didn't really get into Nirvana until after the fact, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and I pick on, I've picked on Corgan on a couple of podcasts in the past. I do think he can be a bit of an egomaniac, but my God, when he uh, gets into a studio, writes some lyrics, records, nine times out of ten, a couple albums aside, Corgan has always been on point, especially in the 90s with Siamese Dream and Adore, and even Oceania, which I still will defend to this very day. And I didn't buy a copy of Siamese Dream until after the fact either, because there was only one album that stood out to me. The album I have at number one is High School to a T for me. It did get me through high school a lot more than I expected it to, and by God, whenever I hear the name Smashing Pumpkins, only one album comes to mind. Then, now, for fucking ever. So, how is one going to remember William Patrick Corgan? when it's all said and done. Will he be remembered for his place in professional wrestling, be it the ill-fated resistance pro wrestling from Chicago or that really embarrassing stint with impact wrestling or his current status as president of the national wrestling Alliance? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I have to say he's done some good things as far as pro wrestling is concerned, especially these last couple years. Will he be remembered for his uh, being underappreciated for scoring 90s film soundtracks like Mel Gibson's Ransom from 1996? You know, the one, give me back my son or the indie film Spun, which was one of Brittany Murphy's first movies. And my personal favorite film score and movie during that time frame, Stigmata, with Patricia Arquette playing the atheist hairdresser who somehow has the Stigmata sign on her wrist and tries to figure out what the hell to do now. Uh, it's corny, but I enjoy it. I think it's a guilty pleasure. If you've never seen Stigmata, do check it out. Corgan's film scoring on here is fantastic. 
But of course, everybody's going to remember William Patrick Corgan as the frontman and guiding voice and lyricist for the band Smashing Pumpkins. That's all well and good. That's expected. But which album will he best be remembered for? As great as Adore and Siamese Dream are, at the end of the day, he will be remembered in six words. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, the double album from 1995. It was the third album of the band's career. It was a huge risk to do a double album because double albums are always risky, but this is one of the best double albums I have ever listened to. It is my favorite album from the 1990s. It is one of my favorite albums of all time, and it is my all-time favorite album from the Smashing Pumpkins clocking in a little over two hours long. There is not one song on here spanning two discs that could be that could be considered filler. It is just a massive event from start to finish. And I love every single song on this album. Yes, I am dead serious. Every single song on here is phenomenal and i'll talk about the deluxe version that came out in 2012 in just a bit but around this time frame i was slowly getting into music that wasn't either sounding with like a sounding having a twang sound or sounding like it came from the 60s and 70s i was trying my best to adapt to current music especially with the people i went to school with but i of all the bands that people were into, the one band I gravitated to more than any of them, especially finally getting MTV on our cable system, was the Smashing Pumpkins. I gravitated towards this album cover just with the lady in the moon looking like she's crying. Just phenomenal. I love the packaging on here. The visual design done by a guy named John Craig from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania who at the time was living in Wisconsin. Just the album cover, the artwork on here is just phenomenal. Uh, the face was taken from the painting called The Souvenir by Jean-Baptiste Grez, the woman on the front cover, I should say. And it was a mixture of two paintings. The rest of it came from Raphael's portrait of St. Catherine of Alexandria. And it was just an incredible work of art. And that's just the booklet and the album cover it's what was in on the album itself the music itself that was a whole nother story and i became a huge obsessed fan with the pumpkins all thanks to the video for the song i'm about to play for you it is still one of the greatest videos of all time and i love this song dearly the video i'm talking about tonight tonight The concept of this album is essentially basically a day in the life of whatever. The concept is basically day to night and what goes on during those time frames. And it's just a phenomenal record. And it, it, the best way to describe this is basically an alternative rock version of the Beatles 
White Album. Butch Vig was was uh, ousted as producer, so it was Flood, who would be one of the biggest contributors to Smashing Pumpkins from this point forward, and Alan Mulder, who has produced many an album and was a mixer for some of the greatest albums of all time, like uh, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Uh, he did mix Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins. I should point that out. Downward Spiral from Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Ejector Seat Reservation by Swerve Driver. Animal Rights by Moby. Pop by U2. And I will talk about that on a future episode. As far as Guilty Pleasure albums are concerned, say what you will, Pop kicks ass. So with the combination of Corgan Flood and Mulder, this was a can't-miss effort, and it was a risk with a double album involved. And 28 tracks spanning two discs, a little over two hours. This is one of the best damned albums I have ever listened to. I begged to get this for my birthday and Christmas for at least two years when this album had come out, and I didn't get it, and I didn't get it until after Christmas 1996. So thanks, Mom. But regardless, I had the album, I got to listen to it, and I was obsessed with this album. This was one of the only albums that I would listen to. I've, I'm pretty damn sure just looking at the album in front of me, I wore those discs to the point where you can barely listen to it without it skipping. It was that great of an album. And I, I, I talked about how there's not a bad track on here. You got the title track that kicks off the dawn to dusk disc which is disc one and you have then you have tonight tonight then you get to grunge alt rock alt metal of jelly belly zero uh, here is no why bullet with butterfly wings which every pumpkins fan and every rock fan has got buried in the head you know the one despite all my rage i'm still just a rat in a cage but they could be very melodic too as far as this as far as this album went uh, to Forgive is a tender ballad. Galapagos is absolutely beautiful and another underrated tune. Uh, then you get uh, the Sonic Youth vibe of the song Love. Uh, and then you got Muzzle, which eh, not my favorite pumpkin single from that album. And actually not my favorite song off that album, but it definitely has its moments. A nine-minute track, as expected, Porcelina of the Vast Oceans. And disc one closes with uh, Take Me Down, which is a James Eha composition, solo work. And this was the beauty of this album. Corgan is usually the main voice and lyricist and what have you, as far as Pumpkins albums are concerned. But this time around, there was more input from Darcy Retsky and James Eha. Even those two would have vocal parts in the closing track on disc two farewell and good night it is just a phenomenal record and this is the epitome of what a pumpkins album should sound like two discs two hours long it's gorgeous from start to finish and you have a day disc and an evening disc i mean what can be said about that it is just absolutely beautiful the title track melancholy infinite sadness corgan on piano it is beautiful. Even got a bunch of Grammy nominations. Uh, I believe Melancholy Infinite Sadness, the song, won Best in uh, Instrumental Performance, I believe. But it was also nominated for Album of the Year. 
and it was up against uh drawing a blank here and who it was up against but it was up against Odalay by Beck which was another great album that came out in 96 uh the score by the Fugees and yet the winner that year was Falling Into You by Celine Dion really really you picked that over Odalay or Melancholy Anyway, yeah, tonight, yeah, tonight, tonight, I talked about. I really have a soft spot. There's one other track on the first disc that I have a soft spot for. Uh, Pumpkin, diehard Pumpkins fans know this as "fuck you," but on the CD and the track listing itself, it's called an "Ode to No One," and that. To me, that was hard rock at its finest in 1996. Alt rock and hard rock. It was a beautiful marriage between those two genres. Disc 2, Twilight to Starlight. This one, I mean, you would think with... Uh, the two halves, one representing day, one representing night, there would be uh, more mellow tracks on the second disc. And and there were, but there are definitely some, uh, it was more melodic hard rock on a, on a few of these tracks, like where Boys Fear to Tread, Bodies was another one, uh, Tales of a Scorched Earth, which is probably one of the most metal tunes that they've ever released it, at, around this time frame. Uh, we only come out at night, which has been used to hawk Microsoft. I think it was Microsoft. I could be wrong. Please let me know uh, if I made a mistake on that one. But there were the highlights on this album were definitely the mellower tracks. I thirty three is good, but one of my favorite songs on here. I always, I will always have a soft spot for the acoustic driven "In the Arms of Sleep," which is almost five minutes long. And just phenomenal when you just want to chill out, put the headphones on, tune everything out. And believe me, there are many times around that time frame I wanted to tune everybody and everything out. And In the Arms of Sleep just calmed me down, uh, dealing with the, uh, with the pain of everyday life at that point. Uh, Through the Eyes of Ruby is really good. Stumbling. I mean, I could go on and on, and XYU is another example of how sometimes, sometimes, the pumpkins can go absolutely hard. And in the eyes of the jackal, I say come! I could pro I'm probably going to get a lot of DMs and comments saying that uh, this is not the best Pumpkins album, but I really don't care at this point. There, I mean, I don't care usually if people disagree with me or not. I mean, you're definitely entitled to your own opinion, but my opinion is Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness is the best Pumpkins album ever. This is their magnum opus. They've never ever been able to top this album they've come close with a door and i have it in my top three and it is an essential album oceania is near perfect but the top three albums that i have on my list those are great pumpkins albums and melancholy double album or not to me this is 
a perfect Pumpkins album. And closing out with uh, the vaudevillian Lily, My One and Only, and then by Starlight, Farewell and Good Night, I talked about. Before I wrap up Melancholy, I do want to talk about that deluxe edition that came out uh, in 2012. I mean, this is definitely, if you are a huge fan of this album, and it is available on streaming services. But I got to say, there are uh, the vinyl version, which the track listing is somewhat uh, switched around, you know, just to uh, save up on vinyl on the time that you can put on a vinyl record. It's a very interesting one, and it is essentially split into three discs. Uh, the first disc is Dawn, Tea Time. The second uh, LP is Dusk and Twilight, and the third LP is Midnight and Starlight. But there are songs on the vinyl that really that you didn't expect that were not on the CD or cassette versions to begin with, uh, like the Tonight Reprise, Infinite Sadness was another one. That closes out the vinyl versions instead of Farewell and Good Night. So if you ever get a chance, I mean, the beauty of streaming services is all that stuff's available. If you want to listen to what Melancholy sounds like on vinyl, you can alternate the tracks and do it that way because all those songs that were included uh, on the vinyl are now on that deluxe edition. Uh, the Morning Tea disc, which is which has a strings version only of Tonight Tonight, a synth version of Zero, multiple tracks, uh, multiple demos and takes of songs that wound up being on the final cut, uh, demos of 1979, which I have to say, let's let's be honest, 1979. Can we at least agree that? is one of the best songs on the album and maybe one of the best pumpkin songs of all time, if not the best. And yes, I am fully aware of the fact that 1979 has been dumbed down to that goofy meme of Billy Corgan on a roller coaster, the part where he goes, wee, as the roller coaster descends down after going all the way up and then going all the way down. I get it. It's funny. It's adorable. But it doesn't change the fact that 1979 is still one of the best songs Billy Corgan ever wrote. But the bonus and the bonus discs on the CD you get different versions of 1979, different versions of uh, Tonight Tonight, Bullet with Butterfly Wings, uh, the Sadlands demos, I might add, the Morning Tea Disc, High Tea Disc, and there's one called Special Tea. <laughs> I see what you did there, uh, where you get a cover of Joy Division's Isolation on there, an alternate version of the opening track to Disc One. Uh, My Blue Heaven, which was an old American standard. Pistachio Medley, which is extras in reverse because they were weird and cool like that. And you get the bonus DVD, which has uh, not one but two shows split amongst 15 tracks. And it's just a really good album. And this is the best-selling. This is their only number one album of their entire career. And this is their best-selling album Five million copies sold, but because it's a double disc, it's technically 10 million. So this is a diamond selling album. This is their only diamond album. It's amazing. 
but it's so damn good. And to me, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness is what got me through high school. It is a damn good album, and you cannot change my mind on this one. Uh, Grammys, shame on you for picking Celine Dion over Melancholy for album of the year. And I'm sorry, but shame on you for picking for picking Eric Clapton's Change the World over 1979 for record of the year. That's not forgivable. But uh, neither here nor there. I'm not on the Academy. I think I'd lose my mind if I had to deal with that shit. But what I can definitely tell you is Melancholy and Infinite Sadness is just incredible from start to finish. I will go as far as say this is my favorite album of the decade, as well as my favorite album of the pumpkins. To me, when I listen to Melancholy, I think of high school, which my high school years really weren't all that great to begin with, but bands like Smashing Pumpkins, I mean, between this, Third Eye Blind Self-Titled, Radiohead's OK Computer, even, yes, Load and Reload by Metallica, and goofy shit like three dollar bill y'all by limp biscuit i mean i listen i basically got into the alternative hard rock scene a little too late i admit that but to me when i think of high school in the 90s only one album has stood out over the test of time and no one can ever change my mind melancholy infinite sadness is just produced beautifully it the lyrics are just perfectly written production is great the artwork is gorgeous and really is an album that you really need to give a listen to. The top three albums I have on my list are ones you have to listen to if you want to get in the Smashing Pumpkins. And no matter what, even if even if Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness 2, which is rumored to come out very soon, I'll believe it when I see it, but I'll be honest. I really have no interest in Melancholy Part 2. I don't. And I have a feeling it'll be a double album. It shouldn't be. It should not even be considered. Because Melancholy Infinite Sadness was that lightning in a bottle. And this was the last time, despite drug addiction, uh, friction between band members, production, burnout and touring, everything that had happened, Melancholy and Infinite Sadness was the last time that a Pumpkins album would be considered both essential and perfect. And so when I think of high school, when I think of the 1990s, when I think of Smashing Pumpkins, no matter what, until the day I die, my pick for number one album will always be Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. I don't know what else I could say about it that hasn't been said about it. The album is just much like Siamese Dream, absolutely perfect. And you get two for the price of one on this one. For God's sakes, go give it a listen. And just like that, another episode of Random Album Rankings is in the books. But before I go, I'm going to give you one final recap from worst to best. Coming in at number 11 is the attempted comeback album from 2007, Zeitgeist, followed by Machina, The Machines of God from 2000 at number 10, Monuments to an Elegy, Elegy, excuse me, from 2014 at number 9, Seer, their most recent album, at number 8, 
At number seven, I have Shiny and Oh So Bright Volume 1 LP No Past, No Future, No Sun from 2018. Number six, Gish, the debut album from 1991. And then in my top five, I have Machina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music from 2000. Oceania from 2012 at number four. Adore at number three from 1998. Siamese Dream at number two. And my pick for my number one favorite Smashing Pumpkins album of all time, 1995's double album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. There, see? That wasn't so bad, was it? I'm actually talking to my own oversized ego. But uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You, the listener, hope it, you, you all enjoyed this episode of Random Album Rankings as well. Be sure to follow this podcast on Instagram at random.album. And you can also rate this podcast on most streaming services, including Google, iTunes, and Spotify, and any other streaming services that offer podcasts to allow you to rate these. One star, five star, please rate this podcast just so so that I know how I'm doing because I can only get better from here. And you can also go to anchor.fm slash random dash album to leave a message which can be played on a future episode. So no matter how nice or how mean-spirited you are, I guarantee you it will be played on a future episode. And you can also donate money to your favorite podcast. Click on the listener support button and you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, not even a buck. Click on the listener support button at anchor.fm to learn more. Or if you would like to do a podcast, if you think you're up to the challenge, go to anchor.fm to learn more. If you choose not to donate, the only thing I ask of you is to tell your friends about this podcast and maybe you could turn them on to a new favorite podcast in the future. My name is BC and tune in next week when I tackle the discography of Incubus. So until next week, I'm BC saying, the world is your oyster. Get out there and go shuck it. Goodbye, everybody. You may think this idea is dumb. Well, you're wrong. It's actually random.